Okay, good morning. Turn to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. We're going to look at verses 6 through 12. We've been going through the book of Malachi, verse by verse, for about five weeks now. Which helps us understand the context of any given passage as we look at the whole book. Slowly work through it and put it into context with Surrounding verses and also the surrounding books of the Bible and then in the Bible, the whole Bible itself. Malachi chapter 3, if you've been in church for a long time, you're probably familiar with this because it talks about tithing, giving. And we know one thing, it's that preachers like to talk about giving. We're going to talk about today because it's in the Bible and it's the passage we came across. But I think you're going to find that it's in the context of the scriptures that maybe not what we've thought it to be in the past. And so we're going to try to put it in the context and get the full understanding of what God wants for us. It's not enough just to say you believe the Bible is true. You actually have to understand what it says. And that's difficult sometimes. So Malachi chapter 3. Verse 6, and again, the book of Malachi is a message from God through the prophet Malachi, a message of warning to the people of Israel, God's people. They were not living right. This is about 450 years before Jesus was born. It's the last prophet before Jesus, or before John the Baptist and Jesus. And Israel is not obeying God. So in verse 6 it says, For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, In what way shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse. For you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail, uh, fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, anyone time someone starts talking about money, that's all we can think about. Whether they want our money, or whether we're supposed to do something. But that's not what this passage is about. The passage is not primarily about giving money. Like every other passage in the Bible, it's primarily about God. Amen. And that's why it starts out with this verse. It says, for I am the Lord, I do not change. The question that we should be asking every time we read the Bible who is God, and what does he expect from us? Who is God? Who is he? And because of who he is, what are we supposed to do? How do we respond to that? And that's what this passage is going to talk about very clearly, who God is and what, how we respond to him. And we're going to see three things. Number one, God doesn't change. God is immutable. Secondly, God makes covenants binding agreements with his people. 
And thirdly, God blesses us in the covenant. And we're going to have to look at the whole Bible to get the understanding of what this passage means. But God doesn't change. God makes covenants with his people, and God blesses us in the covenants. So look at this verse. This verse is one of the most significant verses in the Bible because it gives you a universal statement. Don't you like universal statements? They just always apply. Not many things in this world always apply. If this happens, then you can do this, but you have to be careful about this, and here's some caveats, and here's some conditions, you know, the fine print of every document. But then there's some things that just are always true, and this is one of them. And when you find statements that are always universally true, you build your theology on them because you know it will carry you through. So, I am the Lord, I do not change. That's one of the basic attributes of God. God is revealed in many different ways, through many different forms, but one of the basic understandings about God is that he doesn't change. Now that's significant because literally everything else in this world does change. That's why God is so different, that's why God is so special, is because of all the things that we know about, he's the one thing, the one person who does not change. So I am the Lord, I do not change. How does he not change? Because doesn't it seem like he does change sometimes? Sometimes he changes what he was going to do. He turns back and he doesn't destroy a people. Or sometimes he manifests himself in one way. Even Jesus didn't seem like Jesus changed from being a spirit in heaven to being flesh on the earth. So sometimes we read the Bible we think, well, God does change. We can see him doing different things, being different manifestations. So when we say God doesn't change, what do we mean by that? And we're not going to go into a lot of detail. This will be homework for you. But he doesn't change in three ways. He doesn't change his nature or his essence. He doesn't change his will. He doesn't change his promises. He does change the way he reacts to people. But he doesn't change who he is, his nature, his essence of who he is. One way to think about this is if you throw a tennis ball against a concrete wall, what happens? It bounces back to you. If you throw a rotten apple against the same wall, what happens? It does not bounce back to you. Has the wall changed? The wall hasn't changed at all, but it reacted differently. So God doesn't change, but he does react differently based on who he is to people. And so that's one of the ways we can understand the different ways that God seems to change in the Bible. He's not changing. He's the same as a concrete wall. But as the things around him approach and come in contact with him, the reaction is different. But here's the word. I do not change. He does not change his nature. He never becomes less than God or more than God. He just is. He doesn't change his will. He's not convinced to do something different than what he wanted to do. He doesn't change his promises cannot break his word. So when we look at this, we see something fundamentally divided here. What else can you say does not change? Nothing. So we see a basic divide between God who does not change and everything else which does change. This, this is called the creator-creation distinction. There's the creator who does not change. Then there's the creation which does change. That's what it means to be created. So what it means to be God is that he doesn't change. What it means to be created is that you do change. 
And even in this verse we see it. For I am... Now look at that word there, if you have a Bible with you. Notice it's all capitalized. It's not a translation. It's a concession to some cultural things. But the word, if it were translated, would read, for I am the I am. Not the I will be, or I am becoming. I am. Therefore, I don't change. He doesn't need to change. He is. So, to be God is to be I am. It's to exist perfectly, to be. But to be a creature is to become. Once you were not, now you are. You've become a creature. You're becoming an adult. You're becoming like Christ. You're becoming more sinful or more holy. You're becoming a parent. You're becoming a grandparent. You're becoming old. You see how it means to be created? It means you're constantly becoming something, which means you're changing from what you were to what you will be. And that's what it means to be human. And that's the distinction between us and God. He's not becoming anything because if he was becoming something, he was lacking something beforehand. He was something that wasn't good enough and he had to become something better. But God is perfect, so he can't become anything because he doesn't need anything. So God is, but man becomes. Psalm 1 and 2 says, Your years are throughout all generations. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment. Like a cloak, you will change them, and they will be changed, but you are the same. Aristotle called this the first mover. Who put everything into motion? There had to be something before all motion to put it into motion. And if that person put it into motion, then he can't have been put into motion. It has to start somewhere. And whatever it starts with, whoever it starts with, has to be the source of all that comes later. So God, perfect in his existence, creates, moves, causes things to become. And so to be human, we fundamentally grasp that we are not perfect, that we must become, that we must change because God doesn't change. And that's why we're so frustrated when we look for things outside of God to be stable. We seek unchanging relationships, unchanging people, unchanging churches, unchanging everything because we're not seeking God. But with God not changing, he's enough, he's the stable basis, so that if everything else changes, we have one thing that doesn't. Hebrews 13, remember those who have the rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. But here's the problem. How many people have you considered the outcome and were disappointed? How many of those who had the rule over you in the country, in the church, in your family, in your life, you followed, but the outcome was not good. Turns out they didn't know what they were doing. Or they had a huge failing. Turn the news on any given week and you're going to find a pastor kicked out of his church, in jail, resigned, failing. But then the next verse, it says, considering the outcome of their conduct, which an honest person will find is not encouraging, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You see, there's the application of God's unchangingness. You are to follow your pastor. You are to follow your family. You are to follow your country. But when you consider the outcome, it's discouraging. 
So the Bible quickly follows up with, but, not God, he's the same. He's always the same. No matter how many people fail you, God doesn't change. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. You know, not even turning, not even a shadow of turning, not even a hint at turning. God is so reliable that he doesn't even seem to change. That's what it means to be a Christian, is that this world changes, but God doesn't. And this is the foundation for all relationships with God. His unchangingness is the ground, is the basis, is the concrete that you build the relationship on. Look at the next verse. For I am the Lord, I do not change. Therefore, you see, now we're going to get into a relationship based on his unchangingness. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. God's relationship with his people is based on his immutability. If God changes, then the relationship changes. Then you don't know what's going to happen in the future. So in order to have a stable relationship, you have to have a constant in the relationship. That's why marriages fail. That's why people fail. Because you have two people who are not the same, who change. But in this relationship, one of these people, God, does not change. Therefore, you can have a relationship that is stable. An objective standard. There's nothing objective in this world except for God. So there's no stable relationship unless you have something to compare it to. You know why your marriage will work if it works? Because you compared it to that which does not change. Your family, your church, your faith, everything will work if it's lined up to that which doesn't change. And also, it's not just this objective standard, because sometimes objective standards are harsh and judgmental. Because if you don't meet them, what happens? You're wrong. But that's not all God is. I do not change, therefore you are not consumed. God's faithfulness means no matter how you mess up, he's still the same. You don't need to be perfect because he's perfect. See, sometimes we think people just, it just means flaws to be human. So like that's, that's okay. But it's not okay, but it becomes okay because God is faithful. God doesn't change. Therefore, we're not consumed. His people are not consumed because he's faithful to them. He says, yet from the days of your fathers, you have gone away from my ordinances. You have not kept them. You see the contrast? To be realistic about God is to be realistic about yourself. If you see that God is perfect and unchanging, you have to admit that you are not perfect, that you are changing, that you, the only thing that really doesn't change in your life is the failures. That's the one thing you can bet on in a human life is that there will be failures. And so we put these things next to each other and we see God's unchanging, this faithful, objective standard, his perfection, his beauty, his, cre his creator status, and we see our failure. And how do we bridge that gap? It's a big gap, isn't it? A big distinction. And that's why we see that God doesn't change, but God makes covenants. You can't understand this passage if you don't understand the concept of covenant. A covenant is when two parties bind themselves together into some sort of relationship based on promises. 
That's what God does. That's what God has always done. That's part of God's grace is that he being perfect binds himself to changing people. So when you get this part about tithing, what's that have to do with anything? Well, first, what's the relationship here? What's the condition? What are the promises? So we have to go back to all the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created. What does God's creation have to do with this passage? What does God's creation have to do with you giving money in the offering plate? Because when God made man, he entered into a covenant with man. Everyone who's related to Adam is in a relationship with God. And the relationship has requirements. What are the requirements? Obey. Do what God says. Worship God. That's the requirements of this binding agreement. And we know from Genesis chapter 3, the man breaks the agreement. And what are the consequences? In this covenant, if you don't do what God says, what's the promise God gives you? You see, God makes a promise. He says, I promise you, based on my unchangingness, that if you break the covenant, you will die. And God never changes, so God keeps his promises. So all mankind is in a covenant with God to keep his word. And if he breaks that covenant, God will keep his promises to kill him. And obviously that's not a very good deal for man. It's fair, but it's terrible. And so God in his mercy makes another covenant. Later, with a man named Abraham. You see what it says here, for I am the Lord, do not change, therefore you are not consumed. What's the connection there? Why aren't they consumed? Didn't they break the law? Shouldn't they be consumed? Based on the covenant that God made with Adam, if you break the law, you're consumed. But that's not what he's doing here. So there must be another covenant in play. There's a different agreement with the sons of Jacob. He says, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Unlike other people, you're in a different agreement. That agreement was made with Abraham. God comes to Abraham and says, Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless everyone through your children. Isaac, Jacob. So that means when Israel sins against God, he doesn't consume them because he promised Abraham he wouldn't. That's the agreement. That's the covenant. That Abraham's children through Jacob, through Isaac and Jacob, would be preserved, and they didn't have a say in it. You see, the difference between the covenant with Adam was you had to obey. The covenant with Abraham, Abraham didn't have to do anything. Israel didn't have to do anything. So why didn't God consume them? Even though the next verse he says, you have gone away from my ordinances. Because that covenant with Abraham was not based on their works. And so they're preserved. But then God makes another covenant. What we call the Mosaic covenant, or sometimes the Old Covenant, or the Old Testament. He says, I want a people for myself. So you remember the story? They get out of Egypt. They're in bondage in Egypt. They're just the sons of Jacob here, just preserved because they're children of Abraham. They come out of Egypt. They go to Mount Sinai. And God says there, I'm going to make a covenant with you. And in this covenant, I'm going to make a nation out of you. But this covenant has conditions. Obedience is required. See, now we get to this passage. You know what this passage is talking about? This passage is talking about that covenant. He says, you, you have from the days of your fathers. Which fathers? Moses. You have gone away from my ordinances. What ordinances? The Ten Commandments. 
The law that was given to Moses to build a covenant with the people. You see, the relationship with God and his covenant people at Sinai was built on this binding agreement, and the agreement said, if you obey me, I'll bless you. But if you disobey me, I'll curse you. Promise of blessing or curse? Physically. Think of Israel. There are people. They're promised a land where they will plant crops, raise families, if they obey. But if they disobey, God says, those same crops, I'll destroy. Look at this passage. You are cursed with a curse. You've robbed me. You've broken the commandments. What commandments? Moses' commandments. A promise of physical blessing or physical curse. You see the context we're building here? You know what was required? So they say, God says, return to me. You've been breaking this covenant I've made with you, Israel, children of Israel, my people built at Sinai, created at Sinai under this Mosaic covenant. Return to me. Come back to the covenant and keep it, and I will return to you. But look at the people's response. In what way shall we return? What's the problem? What's the big deal? That's what's ironic through the whole book of Malachi. The people never seem to ever be aware of their own failings. Seven times they're always like, what's the big deal? What's the problem? How have we failed you? When did we not worship you? How will we return? We never left. God says, let's get, some, let's get very specific. Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. He gives them one example of their breaking of the covenant. And they say, in what way have we robbed you? That's ridiculous. No one can rob God and break into heaven and steal his stuff. So he says, let me be very specific. You have robbed me in tithes and offerings. Now, this is not the first time tithes and offerings has come up in the Bible. If they broke the commandment, and he says you broke with tithing, then they must have come from somewhere. So we go back to when the law was given in Deuteronomy, given to Moses, and Moses says... You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. The word tithe means tenth. It literally means 10%. So God lays down this covenant, this agreement with Israel. You shall give 10% of all the increase of your grain that the field produces. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses. The tithe, the tenth of your grain, your new wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herd, your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord. See, they didn't have money back then. They didn't operate like we do. They just had stuff. So you had ten lambs, you took one of those lambs, and you gave it to God. So every year they would bring the tenth to the temple. But at the end of it, and this says in verse 28, at the end of every third year you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the stranger, the immigrant, and the fatherless and the widow who are with you within your gates may come and eat. These are specific, detailed commands given to Israel that must be obeyed to be blessed. If they're broken, they're cursed. So he says here, you are cursed with a curse. You have robbed me, even this whole nation. How do they return? Do what they agreed to do. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now, they're, they're probably thinking, what's God need my money for? Does God, need our, does God need money from people? But that's what 
the covenant was the covenant wasn't meant to make God rich. He owned it all. He gave it to them. The covenant was for their benefit. See, look what the tithe was meant for. You shall eat before the Lord your God. Eat what? The tithe they brought. They brought a tithe and they got to eat it. And then at the end of every third year, you should bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. Why? To give it to the priest, to give it to the immigrants, to give it to the poor. They were withholding this, thinking God doesn't need it. But actually, God was like, this wasn't even for me anyway. This was to teach you to worship me and to help the people who needed money and needed food. It was acknowledging God's sovereignty and it was providing for the poor. And they were robbing God. They forgot the covenant. They're like, when did we actually break the covenant? I don't think we've actually broken it. God says, let me remind you. Okay. To understand this passage, we have to understand that that's a covenant requirement given in Exodus, given in Leviticus, given in Deuteronomy, under the Mosaic covenant that Malachi is giving to his people who are under this covenant with God. And the covenant says, if you obey me, I will rebuke the devourer for your sake so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you, and all the nations will call you blessed. That's the promise. Does God change? No. If he makes a promise, he keeps it. So he says to the people of Israel, obey, you'll be blessed. Disobey, and you are cursed with a curse. If you are in this agreement with God, you must obey it. Here's the thing. We're not in this covenant. And this is what's hard for a lot of Christians to get. We're not in this covenant. We're not in the Mosaic covenant. There's a new covenant. There was God's covenant with all of mankind. There was God's covenant with Abraham. There's God's covenant with David. God's covenant with Moses and Israel. But there's a new covenant. And what's this new covenant about? Is it the same as the old one? Is it better? Is it more difficult? Who is God and what does he require of us? Jeremiah 31, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Who made the covenant? The old covenant. Those he took by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. That's what, if you read the Ten Commandments, the first part of the Ten Commandments says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Commandment number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Who was the covenant with? Who the Bible says it was with? The children of Israel who came out of Egypt. He says, I'm not going to make a covenant like that. He goes, with them that I led out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. Just like in Malachi. That's what he's talking about in Malachi. They broke that covenant. They wouldn't tie and numerous other things. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and I'll be their God and they shall be my people. Did you come out of Egypt with Israel? Did you bind yourself through circumcision to the covenant of Moses? Then you're not under that covenant. Which covenant are you under? Well, if you're an unbeliever, you're under the covenant with Adam, which says obey God or die. If that's the covenant you're living under, you're doomed. God will not change. 
If you are living under the covenant of Adam, then unless you give perfect obedience, you will receive perfect justice. And God does not miss anything. He is faithful to his promises. You don't want to live under Adam's covenant. There's no hope there. There's no life there. And you don't want to live under Moses' covenant either. Because you see what happened to them in Malachi? Couldn't keep it. They were cursed. But you do want to live under this new covenant. A new covenant that was better than the old covenant. It replaces the old covenant. And all the requirements in it. Hebrews chapter 8. New Testament, new covenant. For if that first covenant had been faultless, that's the Mosaic covenant, that's the one Malachi is talking about, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, God says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Now he's talking about that covenant he promised. In that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. See this basic principle that God's saying? If there's a new covenant, then what do you do with the old covenant? You get rid of it. You change. You say the old covenant didn't work very well. It had fault. Because if the first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. So the fact that there's a new covenant means the old covenant doesn't work. The old covenant is replaced by the new covenant which means all the commands, all the blessings, and all the curses are changed or replaced by whatever's in the new covenant. Did you get that? Whatever was in the old covenant is replaced by what's in the new covenant. You can't mix them together. You can't have a halfway agreement. The old covenant is replaced by the new covenant. And this is where the radical change happens. Martin Luther says, that Moses does not bind the Gentiles can be proved from Exodus 21, where God himself speaks. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. This text makes it clear that even the Ten Commandments do not pertain to us. I hold the shock. For God never led us out of Egypt. But only the Jews. The sectarian spirits want to saddle us with Moses and all the commandments. We will just skip that. We will regard Moses as a teacher, but we will not regard him as our lawgiver unless he agrees with both the New Testament and the natural law. You can't live under the old covenant. You can't live under Moses' law. You either choose the new covenant or nothing. The old covenant's gone. There were promises made by God to the people under the old covenant, blessings and curses. If you tithe, if you give 10%, I'll bless you. If you don't, I'll curse you. That agreement, that binding agreement between God and his people is gone. You don't go back under it. You live under the new covenant. And what's the new covenant condition? What are the new covenant requirements? How do you get into the new covenant? And how do you live in the new covenant? It's through Christ. Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. His obedience, not our obedience. How do you live in the old covenant? Obey. How do you live in the new covenant? Christ obeys. Now in the new covenant, there are promises of blessings. Whoever obeys is blessed, but Christ fulfilled those. He was perfect. He always obeyed, so he received the blessings. 
and all the sacrifices that were needed to be made to purge our sins, Christ pays those too. So in the new covenant, you don't have to do anything because Christ did it all. That's why we say there's salvation in Christ alone. It's the new covenant in his blood. Not our blood. Not our sacrifice. Not our work. His work. The new covenant is with Christ, his obedience, his work. So what's the condition for us? One condition. Faith. That's it. The condition for Moses' covenant was obey all the laws. Obey all the Ten Commandments. Give your tithes. Give your 10%. Go to the temple. Sacrifice. Don't wear the right kind of clothes. Don't wear the wrong kind of clothes. Don't eat shellfish. Stone people. All these rules that you read people talking about, like, well, the Bible says you should stone people under that covenant. Well, you can't eat shellfish, and you can't wear cotton and wool mixed together under the old covenant. What about in the new covenant? The just shall live by faith, not by obedience, because you can't keep the law. So Christ kept it for you. So the condition for being in the covenant, for receiving all the blessings of the covenant, is simply faith. Christ alone, faith alone. And if you try to add to that, you're trying to bring back what God has removed. The condition for entrance and for staying in the new covenant is faith alone, no other conditions for blessings. In other words, it's a better covenant. Do you want to go back to Malachi? Do you want your house to burn down? Do you want your kids to get sick? Do you want your job to fire you? That's what Malachi was saying to them. I don't want that. I don't want to live in a world where I get what I deserve. Where what I have is based on what I do. Because that's what Malachi is saying to them. You're in a covenant, he said, where what you do produces your life. So if you withhold money, your crops fail. If you give money, your crops flourish. I don't want that covenant. They couldn't keep it, and we can't keep it. So in this new covenant, you get all the blessings with none of the work. Christ does the work, you get the blessings. Chrysostom, who was a 4th century uh, church leader, he said, this should not be called a bond, this covenant, for that is a bond whereby one is held accountable for debts. But this is a covenant. It has no penalty. Nor does it say, if this be done or if this not be done. What Moses said when he sprinkled the blood of the covenants, by this God also promised everlasting life. You see, that covenant said, do this, be blessed. There it was a slave with master. But here it's friend with friend. There it said, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall die. An immediate threatening. But here is nothing of the kind. How shall you live? Not through obedience, not through faithfulness, through faith, through Christ, a better covenant. You see, so many of us are trying to live up to God's standard. We're trying to get the blessings based on our behavior. And so we struggle and we struggle to keep the commandments and do what's right and so that we'll be blessed. Because you can't. And you're not supposed to. You're supposed to have faith in God who does the work for you. James Proctor writes a poem that says this, Weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease all you're doing. All was done long, long ago. 
Till Jesus' work you cling by simple faith, doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. Cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. That's the new covenant. That's what we live in now. A new covenant with new conditions and new blessings. Not physical blessings. So the question someone asked me was, aren't you afraid people are going to stop tithing? Because right here, this command of the tithe, well, this has been used to tell Christians to tithe, but that's a different covenant. So that means we don't have to do anything. We just sit back and just relax and everything just happens without us. Here's what the new covenant does. Here's the blessings of the new covenant. The old covenant was physical. Give physical things, get physical things. Obey on this earth, get a nation. The new covenant is spiritual. It changes us spiritually. It gives us spiritual blessings. Now, it'll give us physical blessings in the, in the next world, in the new creation. But now it just gives us physical or spiritual ones. What are those blessings? Is it new crops? Is it protection from the nations? No, it's better. It's God with us. You say, that's not better than money. Then you're not a Christian. If you don't think God with you is better than a house and a job, you're not a Christian. You are of this world. You may, you're even of your father, the devil, the prince of this world. But a Christian says, I want God, even if I don't get anything else. And the new covenant says, you can have God. God with you. The fantastic spiritual blessings are God with us, union with Christ. The covenant that binds together binds you with Christ. So you get forgiveness because Christ has it. You get adoption of the family because Christ has it. You are bound to Christ now. Now your regular family may disown you and your job may fire you and your debts may never be forgiven in this world. But with Christ, you're a child. You're a son of God. You are forgiven. That's the blessings of the new covenant. You want to go back to just a field with crops in it? You want to go back to a good job when you can have God? The indwelling spirit. He doesn't just forgive us and send us on our way. He comes and lives with us. You should remember that promise of the new covenant? Not laws that they teach you, so I will put my law in their heart. I will give them a new heart. Here's why we don't need this commandment anymore. Because this commandment was built on threats and bribes. Give money or God will punish you. Give money and God will bless you. So give money. That's not the new covenant. The new covenant says you're going to get a new heart. And you know what you do with that new heart? Whatever you want. Because some people are going to say, well, if the Old Testament, the Old Covenant is not for us, then I guess you can just do whatever you want. Yep. Yes, you can. Because you've been given a new heart that has the Holy Spirit living in it. And that will produce new desires. It's called holiness. It's called sanctification. It's called becoming like Christ. He who has begun a good work in you will complete it. God doesn't need to threaten you into giving money anymore. He simply gives you everything in Christ and you want to give money back. The old had blessings and curses. The new, you're already blessed. You've already got the blessings, whether you do right or not. So 2 Corinthians 8, 
So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity or of fear, for God loves a cheerful giver. They weren't cheerful givers back then. They did it because they had to. And we don't need anything more like that here. God doesn't need your money. Church doesn't need your money. Because the church is a spiritual organization. And it lives on a spiritual power. And then if not another dying came into this church, this church will continue. Because it's built on the new covenant in Christ. It's not built on money. It's not built on your 10%. It's built on the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit has changed us. And if you don't want to give your money to God, one of two things has happened. You've forgotten the covenant, or you're not in the covenant. You said, I don't want to give money. Did you forget what God Christ gave for you? He's already paid your sin. He's already paid your debt. He's already prepared a place for you. He's already with you. He's already given you a new heart. He's already given you a new family. And you still don't want to give anything to him? You've forgotten that, or you're not in the covenant, and so you don't care about God. And so you care more about your money than you do about God. So there's no reason to threaten you now. If you're not in the covenant, then all you have to look forward to is judgment, whether you give money or not. So forget the tithe and fall down before Christ. But if you are a Christian, do the same thing. Forget the tithe, fall down before Christ, and the next thing that will happen is your heart will be changed. And you'll become a cheerful giver. No need for threats and warnings. Look at who God is. Unchanging. Promise keeper. Look at what Christ has done for you in this new covenant. And then your new heart will respond with gratitude. And your money will follow. Let's pray.